Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bill Anzavino, pastor of Christian Assembly Family Church in Ohioville, Pennsylvania. We pray you are challenged in your walk with the Lord through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly Family Church or to subscribe to our free podcasts, please visit us on the web at cafamily.net. Praise God. Amen. This morning I'm going to talk to us about the Logos made flesh. The Logos made flesh. I want to begin by first of all asking two questions. First of all, is it possible to tell the Christmas story without a stable, without a star, without Mary or Joseph or a manger, without angels singing praises, without wise men, gold, frankincense, myrrh, Bethlehem? Is it possible to tell that story without all those features? That's the first question. Second question is, if it's true, that we can, what would it read like? Well, the answer to the first question is a very simple one. It's yes, you can tell the story without all those features provided for us by the synoptic gospels, Mark, I mean, Matthew and Luke. But what would it read like? Well, let's read it and find out what it reads like. John's gospel, chapter one, verse one, first 14 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not made anything that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lights every man comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth." Without all the other features, John focuses in on the supernatural birth of Christ and says it was the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. Now the question is this. Why would John, after so many years, write another gospel? We've got the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, years later, and many believe that he wrote this gospel, which was the last gospel written, like about 90 5 to 98 AD, and some believe even after the century, turn of the century, second century, over 100, 101, whatever, during that time. Do you ever think about this? Do you believe with me that God has everything under control as far as details are concerned with regard to his plan of redemption? All the other apostles died a martyr's death, didn't they? But John was kept alive. Why was he kept alive? Why did he live out the full length of his days? Lived to be something almost 100 years old. Why? No one would challenge the humanity of Jesus. Because you see, if you live back then, you knew Jesus of Nazareth. You knew Mary, his mother. You knew Joseph. You knew he was a carpenter. You knew his brothers. You knew his sisters. But as all those years went by, people stopped believing in his deity. 
So John was kept alive so that one day when he was approached and told, can you write the gospel from your perspective? What do you know about him and who he is? You see, the motivation came for him to write about the deity of Jesus and from a spiritual, supernatural perspective, talk about his life and not just follow the synoptic gospels. Now, motivation is our first point. And I got these three points as I was actually driving to work one day on Tuscarora's Road. I was meditating on what I just said to you and wondering what direction should I go in, uh, Lord, for this Sunday service. And I had a suddenly. Just got a suddenly. And that suddenly just hit me, just kaboom, instantly. It just hit me. And it just came to me, number one, motivation. Number two, explanation. Number three, application. Boom, boom, boom. So I took that as a cue from the Holy Ghost and went into my office and wrote, that, wrote down those three words and said, okay, let's do it. And I began to explore. And that's what this is about this morning. Number one, motivation. Look at John's gospel, chapter 20. What motivated him to write this gospel is found right here with his own words. Jesus, this is him talking, this is Jesus talking to Thomas after Thomas said, I will not believe in him except I see the evidences in the flesh that he's resurrected from the dead. And Jesus came to him, appeared to him with the other the apostles, if you recall the story, and he said, Thomas, go ahead, put your fingers in the, my nail prints in my hands and so on and, and believe. Don't doubt anymore, but believe. And of course, he fell down before Jesus and said, my Lord and my God, right? And here, pick it up. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you believe. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believe. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Here it is, the motivation. Why? I want you to follow through with me on this. These are written that you might believe that Jesus, humanity, humanity, the babe that was born in the manger in Bethlehem, can't be refuted. They have a record of it. He calls him Jesus to point out his humanity. Notice the next part. Is the Christ Messiah to speak to the Jewish community? He's the Christ, the anointed Messiah who was prophesied over the years who should come. Number three, the Son of God, deity. Deity. Humanity, Messiahship, deity, and that believing faith, you might have life, salvation, through his name, authority. What a powerful verse of scripture that reveals to us the motivation for John to write his gospel to let people know from his perspective that this Jesus who you knew when he walked on this earth, humanity, is the Christ every Jewish person would know. He is your long-awaited for Messiah, the Son of God, not man, deity, and so on. That was his motivation. And that's why he wrote it, because people were beginning to refute or deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And can you agree with me today that many are still doing the same thing? He was a good man. He was a role model, but he's no different than Muhammad or, or, and all the other ones that they name. Oh, don't, don't put them in the same class. 
He stands alone in his own class. Number two, the explanation. We've got to read the first three verses of John 1 again. The explanation. Here is the explanation. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the, everybody say with me, Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Do you know why he used the word Logos? That word should have never been translated word. It should have stayed Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. It sounds redundant, but it's not if you understand this perspective. This perspective that he's coming from. The Logos was with God. The Logos was God. The Logos made all things that are seen in this material world. Now, why did he say Logos? If you recall in Genesis 1, what does it say? In the beginning, God, right? He, did, he said in the beginning, he borrowed that from Moses, but he said in the beginning was the Logos, he used logos. He didn't say in the beginning was Christ. In the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was God. He was specific in saying in the beginning was the logos. Because he knew the word logos was rich and loaded with meaning. And it would appeal to both Jew and Gentile alike. And so logos becomes the lens through which we study the gospel of John understanding that he is revealing to the world so he can impact and touch the hearts and minds of all people groups and let them know that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh, not just a good person, not just a good role model, not just a good teacher. Now let's start with this one first camp, the Greek or the Gentile camp, number one. To a Greek or to the Gentile camp, as far as Greek philosophy is concerned, Logos was a principle, not a person. Stay with me. Ask the Holy Spirit to help enlighten you as you receive this. To the Greek or to the Gentile. We understand when we use Jew or Gentile, we're talking about two people groups of the, in the world. And oftentimes the scripture says to the Jews and to the Greeks. Okay, to the Jew, the cross is what? A stumbling block. To the Greeks, it's what? foolishness okay so the greek philosopher now his name is heraclitus born in 568 bc he was the one that first used the term logos and it was to him the stabilizing force of the universe it was this principle that put all this together in the material world and so, to him, when you say logos, you're talking about the expression of God. Not the God we know, not the God we serve, but the principle of a force behind the material world that we live in. So, it would be the, it would be the stabilizing force here upon the earth. Well, this fixed principle, he doesn't know. Couldn't identify him, doesn't understand who he is, what he stands for. All he knows is this, this fixed principle keeps everything in order. Then you've got Stoicism. The Stoic philosophy, which they were highly influenced by Heraclitus 
and Socrates. And to those that believe along with them, they say basically the same thing. It is the same active reason pervading and activating the universe. You could say it ordered the world that we live in and controls the world that we live in. So when John used the word logos, he immediately captures the attention of Greek philosophers and anyone who believes in the logos. Because the logos is this principle, the logos is this powerful force behind the material world that we live in that they can't put under a microscope, they can't explain it, they don't understand it, but it's the logos. Now, go to the Jewish camp. The Jews also referred to logos, but in a different way. And Philo is the one who was a first century Jew from Alexandria. And he's the one that connected logos to Yahweh. So, to him, logos was Yahweh in action. In the action of creation, in the action of revelation, in the action of deliverance. They use the term logos. Shows you look through Old Testament history and you see God at work. Philo would teach them, he was also influenced by these other Greek philosophers, that this is God or Yahweh in action. So now we have the Jewish philosopher, Philo, and now you have the Greeks, and both of them embrace the term logos, maybe with a different perspective, but still it's the phrase or term logos. In the beginning was the logos. It's the logos that's unexplainable, but the logos holds everything in the universe together. Well, John is using the term logos to capture the hearts and minds of the people from the Jewish society or camp and also the Greek or the Gentile to get them all and start their thinking. Logos. What is this logos? A principle? Is it really a principle? Or is it a person? Well, Look at John's gospel, chapter 8, because here's what he adds to his gospel. He is preaching his gospel or writing his gospel from the perspective of Jesus being more than just a principle. He is a person. And while he was here on the earth, he made these statements or declarations that John really points out even more so than the other synoptic gospels do. Look at this statement. In John's Gospel, chapter 8, beginning at verse 56, he's having a dialogue and a conversation with the Pharisees and the scribes. They're saying to him, we've never been bound by any man. We belong to Abraham. Abraham's our father. Jesus said, if Abraham were your father, you'd love me and you know who I am. But because you don't know me, you don't know who I am, you're your, your father the devil. In verse 44, he says, you're of your father the devil. He's a liar from the beginning. He lied, etc., etc. And now they're getting hotter under the collar by every moment that goes by. Every word that Jesus speaks out of his mouth, they're getting angrier and angrier. Notice, he said, I am the light of the world. Notice, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father. But remember all those statements he made? They're all John gospel statements. I am, I am, I am, I am. He kept saying, I am, I am. So finally, when Jesus said, okay, you say you're of your Father, you don't think you're of your father the devil? You think you're of your father Abraham? Abraham knew me. He knew my day. He saw my day and was glad. 
your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Oh, did he get under their collar? Did he get their goat at that time? They were so furious with him. They wanted to stone him to death. Why? Now he's not only the way, the truth, and the life. He's the father in visible form. And they can't handle it. He used the term, I am. You see, the term before Abraham was means Abraham had a beginning. Abraham had a birth. He was born into this world, but before he was, I am. What he's saying is, I always existed. I exist. I will always exist. I'm the ancient of days. I am the great I am. I was with the Father. I pre-existed. I coexisted with him. I self-exist. I don't need anybody or anything. I am who I am. He got that from Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14 when Moses says, who should I say he sent me? And what he said was, say, I am sent you. So God is saying, Jesus is saying, I am, I was, I am, and I always will be. So he uses that terminology, and they're boiling over with anger. They want to stone him because he's making himself out to be God. Look at John's gospel, chapter 10. Look at verse 30. I and my Father are one. You think Jesus was hiding his identity? I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not. Notice, but for blasphemy, being thou being a man, makest yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, ye are gods, if he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father had sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. There's no hiding that there. For I do not, if I do not the works of my Father, believe me not, but if I do, though you believe me not, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Is John making it very clear to the Pharisees and to the scribes who he is? I and the Father am one. You say you're of your father Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the great I am. I've come into the flesh. I'm here in the world. And I'm here as your Messiah. And you don't believe me. Look at the next one, John 14. Now, we know the first six verses. Probably almost everyone can quote it. Remember he said, In my Father's house are many mansions. And so believe, fear not. Believe, do you believe in God? Believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If we're not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive it in myself where I am. You may be also. And whither I go, you know, in the way you know. And Thomas said to him, We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And he said, What? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to my Father except by me, right? Look at verse 7. Pick it up there. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. 
And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us, or it's enough for us. But Jesus said to him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, and how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. So if you don't believe what I'm saying, he appealed to the Pharisees the same way. If you don't believe my words, if you don't believe what I'm saying, have you not seen what I have done? Have you not heard how I raised the dead, healed the sick, set the captives free, cast out devils, and walked on water, and, and all the works that he did? And he said, I didn't do these. My Father in me, he doeth the works. So if you won't believe me, then believe the works. Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen God the Father manifested in the flesh. He wasn't hiding anything, was he? Now, let's move over here to intelligent design. Anybody hear about intelligent design? The theory that life, or you could even say the universe, cannot have arisen by chance. It was designed, they say, and created, how? By an intelligent. Notice they always use the word intelligent. You see, the Greeks had so much as far as intelligence is concerned and wisdom and knowledge and understanding and all that. There's this intelligent design out there. But the entity they didn't know of. There's some intelligent force that's out there. Some intelligent design. Some intelligent creator that's out there. And they're calling it just wisdom. They're calling it logos. The word that's out there. But they can't explain it. They can't define it. They can't put their hand on it. Look at Albert Einstein. You know, when I was putting this together and I thought, we call him a genius. Well, listen to your genius speak. Here's what he said. Of course there is a God. He starts off pretty good. Of course there is a power behind this, speaking of the material world, intelligent design. But we could never know it. He misses it right there. We could never, never know it. This is cosmic force. It's cosmic intelligence. It's cosmic order. Certainly not to be identified as the God of the Bible because if you're going to make it into the God of the Bible in a way that it's revealed in the Bible, then we not only have a creator, we have a judge and an executioner for those who reject him. You are right. You are right. Do you see the point? They don't want to identify with the God of the Bible because if they identify that this logos, this, this intelligent designer that's out there is the God of the Bible, then they're subject to the laws of the God of the Bible. Then they're subject to his judgment and subject to whatever punishment they would receive for disobeying him, etc., etc. So they don't want to say that it is the God of the Bible, but there is uh, something out there. Of course, evolution and Intelligent design kind of butt heads when it comes to this. So in short, to the Greek mind, 
the Logos is the most powerful force in the universe. It is the force behind creative powers that supposedly brought this material world into being. It is a powerful force called wisdom. It is the greatest form of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, and intelligence to the Greek mind. Because you see, that's exactly what they fed on. But then to the Jewish mind, it is the action of Yahweh in creation, in revelation, and deliverance. Notice it's the action of Yahweh. It is not Yahweh himself, but the action of Yahweh. So now we have both the Greek camp, now we have the Jewish camp, we have the scientific camp of right here, intelligent design, but what is John saying? What is he speaking? What is he writing about? The Logos is not a principle. He says to the Greek mind, the Logos is not an abstract force. The Logos is not the epitome of wisdom. The Logos is more than human intelligence. The brightest, most brilliant mind. He says to the follower of Socrates and others that with their scientific discoveries come up with theories. And what is a theory? It's a supposition based on the ignorance of the subject under discussion. Because they don't know, they can't answer, so they suppose, so they have a theory. And they theorize and say, it must be this intelligent design. It must be this force, this principle that's out there, that's floating around out there, that keeps the material world and the universe into being. But John says, no, in the beginning was the Logos. He's got their attention. And the Logos was with God. He's got their attention. And the Logos is God. And the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so what he's telling them, look, look, the Logos is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. He was born in a stable by the Virgin Mary as it was prophesied years gone by by Isaiah the prophet who said, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child and his name shall, a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, who is God with us. In Isaiah 9, that says in verse 6, unto us a child is born, and a son is given, humanity and deity, and, the, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. He is taking everything that, be, that they believe in, putting it all together, and saying, you're talking about Jesus. You're talking about the babe and the... Womb of Mary. And you want to hear more? God who had sundered times and diver, in times past in diverse many ways, talked to the fathers in different ways, hath in his last days spoken to us by his son who hath appointed to be heir of all things, Hebrews chapter 1, by whom also he made the worlds. Everything that's in it. All they have to do is submit themselves to understand who the Logos really is. And then they would believe. They would have faith. And they would call upon the name, the only name under heaven, given among men, whereby they must be saved. And what is that wonderful name? The name of Jesus, the Logos made flesh, who dwelt among us. And finally, my third point, the application. First of all, look at John 3. 
the logos came into the world that he created so that the world through him might be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. What is the objective? What did he say his purpose was? To present Jesus as God manifest in the flesh to both the Jew and to the Greek so that everyone would believe and they would be saved and they would experience eternal life. That's exactly what he said he wrote his gospel for. And so if you have, a, in, let's say, a difficult time witnessing the people that are out there that are so intellectual, take them on a trip through John's gospel and let them know. This is why he wrote this. This is why God kept him alive. Because he knew his deity would be challenged, not his humanity. Jesus' humanity, Christ's deity, fused together hypostatic union, incarnation, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now the last point is application. Go to back to John's Gospel, chapter 1. The application, and this is of utmost importance to every single one of us. This is why you're here today. This is why tomorrow night we're going to celebrate the incarnation or the hypostatic union of deity and humanity. So look in John's gospel, chapter 1, beginning at verse 10. He was in the world. Just, just let that sink in. He was in the world. It's, it's as if... I painted a picture, a beautiful picture of people standing on a street, sitting down having lunch. I'm the creator. Jumping into the canvas and becoming a part of what I painted. Let that sink in. He, the force behind all that's out there, the creative powers of the living God who created everything, the world and everything that's in it, jumps into his own creation to a virgin birth and becomes a man. Great is the mystery of godliness. You can't wrap your brain around it. It's almost impossible to wrap our brains around it. That the second person of deity, the Logos, who they're searching for, who they want to identify, who they don't know who it is, but John revealed it, entered the womb of a woman and took on humanity. And he was born into this world that he made, and he came into the world that he made, and the world knew him not. Oh, my brother and my sister, those words are profound. They could never be more profound than they are today. They know him not. The people of the world today know him not. And that's why we exist. That's why the church is here. We need to shout it from the mountaintops that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. People in the world, they don't know who they are. They don't know who God is. They don't know their identity. They don't know whether they're a boy or a girl or a man or a woman. They don't understand what direction that they're going in. They don't know where they came from, why they're here, where they're going. They have no clue that there's life beyond this world that we live in. And the only ones that know, we're sitting right here in this church, all the believers we're the ones that know he needs us to get on the megaphone and tell them, praise God, he was in the world. He came to the world, and the world knew him not. How sad. And it's still true today. Secondly, look at the next verse, verse 11. 
He came unto his own, and his own received him not. John is speaking, remember. John is marveling at this. He's writing this in, like I said, about A.D., 98 A.D., right around 180. All these years have gone by. The temple's already been gone, overcome by the Romans, remember? Okay. So all this time has elapsed, and he has marveled at the fact he came to his own, his own temple, his own people, the Jews, his own company. He came to his own land, the ones he loved. He said, you're so dear to me. I didn't choose you because you were more than other people of the earth. I chose you because I love you. I chose you and I gave a covenant with you through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're my very own. He came to his own. And what did they do? They gave him the left foot of fellowship. They received him not. You think it's sad. Remember him with his arms stretched out over Jerusalem? And he said, oh, the ones that killed the prophets and did all that they did. How I would have longed to take you under my wings. How I longed to come and just embrace you and reveal myself to you and love on you. Because you see, Abraham gave himself completely. I'm giving myself completely to you, but you reject me. You don't want anything to do with me. You crucified me. But look at the next verse. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power. And that word power should be privilege or the right to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. It doesn't matter if you've come from Heraclitus or Socrates or if you have any other intelligent design person that you follow who writes beautiful things but doesn't know what he's writing about or talking about because he doesn't know the source of life, the source of creation of the universe. doesn't matter who that person is. If we present to them this gospel of John, and in the gospel of John, they see that the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. No, you can't understand it. I can't understand it. We don't know how he who is limitless can become limited by and subject to, subject to a physical body with all of its limitations. And walked on this earth, robed in flesh, but he did. I know he did. And his resurrection proves it. The greatest events to ever occur in the realm of human history were, number one, the birth of Christ that we're talking about today. Number two, the life that he lived when he walked upon the earth. Number three, the death that he died like no man ever died. And four, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead where he took his blood to the high court of heaven and finally his ascension where he ascended on high to become the high priest of the new and everlasting covenant are the greatest events to ever occur in the realm of human experience. And the most tragic event to ever occur in the realm of human history is when an evil angel came to a woman named Eve in the garden and said, don't live within the boundaries that God established for you because there's more on the other side. There's something better that's out there. Young person out there today, don't listen to a statement made by the devil along that line because you step beyond those boundaries, you're stepping into some troubled waters for your life and for eternity. 
Well, she shall fell victim to it, but God so loved the world. Look at the next verse. To them gave he power to become the sons of God, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The new birth, my brother and my sister, does not originate with man. Man has no part to play in it whatsoever. There is nothing a man could have possibly done to redeem himself from his fallen state. This was all initiated by God who created the world, who came up with a plan of redemption for man when he fell and said, my love for humankind is so far reaching and so deep that I will sacrifice my son. You know, others sacrifice in other religions, they sacrifice their children to appease their God. God sacrificed his son so that he can reconcile us back to himself so we could have peace with him. It's the only, if you want to call Christianity a religion, where that has happened. So God becomes a man in the person of his son. He is the sacrificial lamb who gives his life for us. He comes into this world. He reveals to us the very heart of the Father. It's not the will of, God, will of man. It's not the will of the flesh. What's he saying? You can't get to heaven because of what family you've been born to. It could be a rich family. It could be a wealthy family. It could be a political Political family could be a historic family, a very intelligent family. It does not matter who you've been born to and what family you're in unless you're in the family of the Most High God. You could be born a descendant of Abraham. It doesn't matter if you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and your great-grandfather, praise God, walk with them during daily life. It doesn't matter if you've got Jewish genes in your blood. None of that matters. You're born not of the will of man or the flesh. You're born of the will of God. He begat us of his own will, begat he us with the word of truth. Oh, beloved, the Logos became flesh 2,000 years ago, walked upon this earth like no man walked, talked like no man talked, did as no man did, died as no man died, raised up as no man was raised up from the dead before, came back and showed himself alive to prove his deity and all we have to do is believe. If that doesn't command our allegiance, my brother and my sister, I don't know what more God can do. If you're a lost soul out there, it is not God's fault. You know, Zephaniah 3.17 tells us that he loves us, that he poured himself out. He loves us with an endless love. He's resting in his love for us. And that rest he's talking about is, I have poured every part of my being out unto death to prove my love for you. So stop trying to figure it out when you're head. Accept it, believe it, and embrace it. Application. Look at Second Corinthians. Well, first of all, verse 14. He became flesh. He tabernacled among us. The Word became flesh. The Logos became flesh. He tabernacled among us. We beheld His glory as the, only, as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. But then, look at verse, can we, well, look at 2 Corinthians 9, 15 first, and then we'll look at John 1, 17, 18, then we'll close. Tomorrow night when we gather together to celebrate the Incarnation, you ever opened up a gift that was so breathtaking? You had no speech, no words. What did you get? I can't even describe it. 
I can't even say. It is beyond my vocabulary. It's beyond my intelligence to describe. This gift is beyond words. Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. You realize when we gather together to celebrate, or anytime we think about Christmas, I don't know what it does to you, but now when you see people just clamoring to get that gift, knocking people out of the way to get to the sale. I had it happen to me. I never believed it. I never believed it. So one day I went with my wife shopping for Christmas, and she says, they'll run you over. I said, people can't be that rude. So I was in a, a, a shop with her, of course, looking with female, you know, like dresses and, and all that sort of thing. And there was a sale table, and I just reached down to look at something. Some lady grabbed it right out of my hand, just ripped it right out of my hand. I was looking at that first. I backed off. Wow. That's not what Christmas is all about. It's not about getting as many gifts around a Christmas tree that we could possibly get. And if there's anything I want to instill within our hearts and lives and our children in particular, you realize this is only our way of giving because we've been given the gift that's unspeakable that we have no words to articulate effectively or efficiently what it meant for God to become a man, the Logos, in the person of Jesus Christ and lay down his life as the ultimate gift. And, you know, is that the reason why people buy so many gifts? Christmas time, I don't know. But let me just tell you this. He's indescribable. Better than an iPhone. I don't know who does this. I mean, maybe, maybe people do that I don't know. You ever see these advertisements where he got her a truck and him a minivan or, or switched it and she switched it and, and all that? Merry Christmas. Are you, are, are you mad? Are you out of your mind? You bought each other vehicles and you didn't even know? She didn't even know you're buying these two vehicles? Gee. Who does that? What I'm saying is, just this, it's what, is, what Christmas has become is what? So commercialized. Give and give and give and give and give. And we kind of miss the whole picture. God so loved the world. He gave us himself in the person of his son. He left his glorious estate, his experience in glory to Limit himself to the inconveniences of a flesh body where he can walk on the creation that he made where he could do for us what we can do for ourselves because he would house the very blood that would save mankind. And without him, there is no salvation at all. And he did what he had to do and died the death he had to die. And then he had to suffer the suffering of the wrath of Almighty God and wait for the moment when his father would say, once again, when he brings him into the world, he said... Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Oh, my brother and my sister, no wonder we sing the song, Fall on your face, fall on your knees. Oh, holy night, what a holy night. And if that doesn't command my allegiance, what do, you mean by my, what do I mean by my allegiance? 
Number one, serve him, surrender him, find out his will for your life. Go to church somewhere you can become a part of a church family and just take your place and do your part. Serve the kingdom of God in any, any way he would call you to serve that kingdom. Give up your tithes, give up your offerings to advance the kingdom of God upon this earth. Just do what you know to do. Use the gift, the talent, and the ability that God has given you. First Peter 4.10 says we all got gifts and we're to use those gifts. Why? To minister one to another as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. That's why. And you know what? And if you'll do that you, as you live your life upon this earth, and one day when you go back to glory, hallelujah, you'll hear those wonderful words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter to the joy of your Lord. Let's close with this first, uh, first chapter of John. This is from the Amplified Bible. For while the law was given through Moses, grace, under, unearned and undeserved favor and spiritual blessing and truth came through Jesus Christ. No man has ever seen God at any time. The only unique son or the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, that is the intimate presence of the Father, he has declared him, he has revealed him, he brought him out where he can be seen he has interpreted him. He has made him known. Hallelujah. That is the Christmas story without the magi, without the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, without angels singing, without shepherds watching their flock, without a manger, without Joseph, without Mary. John is saying all that's necessary. All those features are important. But I'm talking about the deity of the Son of God. He is the Logos made flesh. And if you have an intelligent mind, then think about what I'm saying. Read about what I said and open up your heart to the Savior of the world because your Logos is not a principle. He is a person. And his name is Jesus. Oh, let's all stand together before the Lord.